You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thank you, Max, and welcome to this episode of Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. One topic that we've covered in the past on this podcast is immigration. Now, our previous discussions have focused on national policies and specifically how those policies have created a human rights crisis on our southern border. But today we want to bring the conversation local and focus on immigration policy in the state of Illinois. At the center of Illinois policy on immigration is the Trust Act. The Trust Act was passed in 2017 and signed into law by then-Governor Bruce Rauner. The Trust Act, as you will hear, was designed to improve relations between communities of newcomers all across the state of Illinois and local law enforcement. But recently, the ACLU, along with our partners supporting immigrant rights, went to court in order to challenge two county sheriffs who have not been adhering to the provisions of the act. We want to talk about the Trust Act, why it is important to residents of Illinois, how it is being implemented, and how it's being violated. Our first guest today is Moni Ruiz Velasco. Moni is the executive director of PASO, an immigrants' rights and services organization located in Chicago's western suburbs. PASO is at the forefront of the struggle for immigrant rights, organizing immigrant families to fight against deportations, work towards government accountability and transparency, and end criminalization for all communities. Some of our listeners may recognize Moni's name from her role recently advocating when Customs and Border Patrol agents held three children, all U.S. citizens, in detention at O'Hare, hoping to lure their mother to pick them up, where they might be able to take the mother into custody. Moni, we are happy to welcome you to Talking Liberties. Thank you for inviting me. So I wonder if you could just start talking a little bit about the work that PASO does. Sure. So PASO is the West Suburban Action Project, and we've been around for 10 years. Um, we're a community-based organization uh, in the western suburbs. That's where really our core work happens. Um, we are based in community, and our core work is organizing. And everything we do works around the organizing. So we do policy work as well at the local, state, and federal level. Uh, we have a legal program, but it really is kind of for us, a tool to organize a community as well. So we have a a group of community leaders that really set the direction and that, you know, really identify the issues and the the priorities for the organization. You know, one of the things that I've heard you talk about and, and you've really focused on and tracked in many ways is the impact of ICE raids in communities and in neighborhoods. And I wonder if you could just talk in general just for people to understand like what the impact of that is, what kind of emotions and what kind of reactions people have when when those raids take place that, you know, for some of us we just read about or or hear about in the news. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when we talk about ICE raids and what we see in communities is often um, things that don't look like um, what people normally think in policing, right? So they're unmarked cars, there are people in plain clothes, that are coming to people's doors. I think, you know, there's so much fear in immigrant communities when these kinds of things happen and and the fear really spreads quickly. So 
typically in, in raids, um, what we see in, in our communities is that they start either very, very early in the morning, like at five or six in the morning, when immigration agents know that people are home. And they'll knock on people's doors. And, you know, oftentimes they don't identify themselves as who they really are. Sometimes they lie and say that they're police. Um, in fact, their clothes usually, if there's anything on it, it'll say police. And they don't show IDs. And, um, you know, as you know, they don't have warrants when they conduct these warrantless arrests. So, you know, I think the the main idea is that, you know, we have these agents that are really out in the community in plain clothes without identifying themselves and really tearing families apart and creating a lot of fear and um, uncertainty because often people don't know who even takes their relatives. We've had clients who have gone to the police after an ICE raid because they don't know or after their relative disappeared wow. because they don't know where they are and they don't know who took them. And since they don't have marked cars, they don't necessarily know that it was a law enforcement agency. And that it was this. and that it was a an ICE agent in particular who took their loved one. Exactly. I mean, we've had clients who have disappeared taking the trash out in yeah. the back of their house, you know, because the ICE agents were waiting uh, by the back alley or whatever. So, yeah, so oftentimes the police is the next place where people go when they can't find their loved ones. And the police have now gotten better at knowing that when somebody comes in reporting those kinds of circumstances, and obviously if somebody's not in their own system, usually they'll let people know, you know, it's probably ICE who came to take your relative. So how does that fear and that anxiety around those things fit into sort of the motivating factor or the motivating uh, motion behind the Trust Act? Yeah, so the Trust Act is, you know, um, a bill that we worked on and on what is now state law here in Illinois. And what we saw, and again, was identified by the community, is that there is collaboration happening between ICE and the police. And in 2017, which is when the bill passed, this was after a few attempts at passing it in previous years. So it wasn't our first try. Mm-hmm. And it never is, by the way. Is I know, it? <laughs> it never is. Yeah, good things are, are hard to get. Yes, yeah, so, you know, people identified that as one of the main, you know, reasons for concern, obviously. We also saw that a lot of people were kind of ensnared into the deportation process through the collaboration between ICE and police. And that was something that we felt strongly needed to stop. And, you know, obviously the Trust Act was a really great place to start, but it's not, it's not the end. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what does it feel like for someone in the community? You said they identified this as being something that was a priority. What does it feel like in the community when their local law enforcement officials are cooperating with those very same agents who are causing the fear and pain that you described before? Yeah, well, unfortunately, you know, our communities already are very fearful of police because we know that police do not treat all people equally, and particularly communities of color are over-policed and over-prosecuted and, you know, obviously suffer the higher consequences for any action um, that they may take. So, you know, when when people are afraid to report a crime or where people are afraid to go to their police officer or their police station when they themselves are in danger or in harm's way, that makes all of our communities less safe. And, you know, that is really what it looked like for communities who felt like they couldn't trust the police. They didn't know if they went and reported 
something that was happening to them, if they themselves were going to end up in immigration custody. And that really was identified as a huge need and something that we needed to address uh, with the Trust Act. So what was it then that you specifically wrote into the Trust Act to address those things? What were the provisions that you thought were particularly important to address those issues? You know, we work in coalition. Obviously, it wasn't just us at Paso. It was many other organizations for several years that worked together to really address the needs of saying, if the police is going to do anything with ICE, obviously, we don't want the police and ICE collaborating in any way. But with the Trust Act, it's the beginning of that uh, real separation that we really are advocating for and need to have between police and ICE. And the Trust Act basically says that unless... ICE comes to the police with a signed warrant by a judge that otherwise the police cannot collaborate with ICE, cannot detain someone to turn them over to ICE. I think both educational campaign, even within our legislators, Mm -hmm. who didn't always understand, because I think people generally in this country think if there's going to be a police action, there's going to be a warrant. And I think that's what you know, people are taught and I think that's what we believe. And I think when people started realizing that ICE was conducting these warrantless arrests, there was this like moment of, what what do you mean? Like, what do you mean they don't have warrants? And so it was, um, I think, an important piece as well to talk to our own legislators to explain to them how ICE conducts warrantless arrests on a regular basis and how we do not want the rest of law enforcement participating in those warrantless actions. So one of the things that you were able to do and the coalition in lobbying for the Trust Act was ultimately to win some support from law enforcement itself. And I wonder if you could talk about that process because that feels really key to something like this. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't an easy process. And, you know, I have to say they didn't love it at first. Uh, (laughs) We had uh, really good sponsors who worked with us very closely. President Cullerton was the lead sponsor in the Senate. He was very uh, involved in the process of negotiating and talking to law enforcement about this and why it was important. I think, you know, eventually, I think law enforcement agencies came around and understood the importance of building trust with the community primarily. And we had, especially, for example, the Police Chiefs Association, they really felt that it was important that people are able to report crimes. And so they, you know, they were supportive of the Trust Act. But it is a conversation, I think, oftentimes, you know, law enforcement doesn't like to be uh, told what to do. And so with this effort, it was, you know, again, an effort to explain to them that they needed to understand that it was also a liability for them to engage in warrantless arrests like ICE was doing. And I think that's what ultimately hopefully helped them. And and this may seem a little bit strange in in these current times to some, but it was also then bipartisan. It was a a Republican governor, Bruce Rahner, who signed the bill into law. That's right, yeah. It was a big community effort. It was a Republican governor who signed it into law. And I think, you know, we got the strongest version of the Trust Act of any other state in the country. Uh, We have a Trust Act that says that the police cannot do warrantless arrests in any circumstance Mm -hmm. uh, in collaboration with ICE. And I think that that was really an important win, especially, as you said, in a bipartisan effort. And we also had some Republicans who supported the Trust Act as well. 
uh, Republican members of the state legislature. You know, I think ultimately there is this notion that we want law enforcement to be accountable. We don't want people just being arrested without due process. And I think that's what ultimately won with the Trust Act. So it's passed, it's signed into law. So clearly it's being adhered to in every corner of the state of Illinois, right? I mean, there haven't been any issues that you've identified as thus far. Clearly, that's what always happens with our bills. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So unfortunately, you know, there have been a lot of violations of the Trust Act, as well as other bills that we have passed, you know, in the past. And, you know, again, there's it's important to have accountability measures in bills. The Trust Act, again, because we were doing it in a bipartisan effort and really in good faith negotiating with law enforcement, we agreed to take out some provisions that had accountability measures within the law at the request of law enforcement. And now law enforcement, and not all law enforcement, but some law enforcement agencies have been violating the Trust Act. So, Yes, we have been tracking that for since 2017, since the law passed and was signed into law and, um, you know, have found some parts of the state in particular that are more problematic than others. And that must be frustrating that you, in good faith, take out those measures that require accountability and then turn back around and see the law not being recognized and implemented in the way that it's supposed to. You know, that's part of the legislative process in some ways, but the other part is that's got to be particularly frustrating for people who are affected in that way. Well, it's more than frustrating. Obviously, it's a violation of the law, and law enforcement should not be violating the law. I mean, they're the ones that should be more than anyone else following the law. So I think, you know, yes, it was, you know, good faith effort in negotiating the bill and, you know, ensuring that people were happy with the end product. But I think it was also clear. And I think, you know, at the time, President Cullerton and Representative Welch, who was our sponsor in the House, made it very clear that if there were violations of the law, we would maybe need to revisit some of this in the future. So, you know, we have discovered some pretty serious violations across the state, especially in areas a little bit further away from the Chicago area, but not always. So I think it's, you know, it's, it's, there are some important actions that we're taking, some with the ACLU as an important partner in filing a lawsuit, as well as looking at other legislative fixes for this problem. So do you think that there will be legislative action or at least proposals upcoming, whether it's in the new session or in years ahead, to help strengthen the Trust Act? Absolutely. Great. What would you say that people should do if they see a violation or hear about a violation or are aware of one in some ways? What can they do to help ensure that the act is fully implemented and recognized? So we have a statewide hotline, the 24-hour hotline people can call. It's one eight five five help my family It's a hotline of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. And people can call there and report violations of the Trust Act or the Voices Act, uh, which is another bill that we passed for U visa for people who are crime victims, survivors, and also has a requirement of law enforcement to comply with that law. Right. So people can call and report the violations there. The calls will be routed to our organization at PASO, and then we track those and try to help as much as possible in individual cases, but really want to see where we see patterns of abuse and things like that. And then I guess the, my last question is, what would you say to others who are listening, again, who are not part of an immigrant community, but in terms of helping, in terms of what role they can play to help ensure or protect 
communities, what are the direct steps you think people can take to be the most useful? Yeah, I mean, I think the first step is always connecting with organizations on the ground and organizations that have folks who are directly impacted um, so that they really can follow the lead of those organizations and those people who are, you know, directly impacted by the issues. I think that's the first step. And there are organizations like that across the whole entire state. So there are ways to connect with many of our organizations. I think the other way is to really stay informed uh, and to really understand what is really happening out there and how individual people and individual communities can make a difference. So, you know, we have members of Congress, for example, who are voting on important issues that impact our communities every day, like funding for ICE and for other agencies that are causing a lot of harm in our communities. And that's something that people can do today is, you know, we have an upcoming vote on a budget. They can call their member of Congress. They can call their senator and tell them to make sure to defund these agencies that are causing harm. Well, Moni, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us today. And I just want to say on behalf of the ACLU, congratulations on 10 years of PASO and your work. And we look forward to working with you for many years going forward. Thank you. Same here. Our second guest today is my colleague Aron Siebert Yera, our immigration staff attorney at the ACLU of Illinois. Aron joined the staff of the ACLU in 2018 after a career working in public policy in Illinois and across the country. Aron, welcome to Talking Liberties. Thank you very much, Ed. Glad to be here. So we've heard a lot about the Trust Act from Moni, and recently the ACLU filed two lawsuits challenging violations of the Trust Act. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit of where those suits were filed and why they were filed. So we filed in two counties, in Ogle County and Stevenson County in the northwest part of Illinois. And we filed these suits because, well, as Moni had said, we have been hearing about a lot of violations and not just violations of the Trust Act, violations that are known that the sheriffs that are violating the Trust Act are knowingly doing it. Mm -hmm. They're well aware of what the Trust Act is. And when they have been notified that they're violating the Trust Act, have pretty much responded that it doesn't apply to them and that they're not violating it. So as a result of hearing about a lot of these different issues across the state, we filed these two lawsuits. So so you talk about that they should have known. Yes. Um, What do we know about that? Like, are they just supposed to know because they read it in the paper? Do they track what happens in the General Assembly? You know, how how would a sheriff's office, in these two instances specifically, how would a sheriff's office know that a law like this has been passed? Well, since 2017, when the bill was signed into law by Governor Rauner, the Attorney General's office has twice sent out directives to all law enforcement across the state, notifying them of what the responsibilities are underneath the Trust Act. In addition, when you talk about everything that happened leading up to the signing of the Trust Act to it being passed, you had all kinds of law enforcement from the Fraternal Order of the Police to local law enforcement to the Illinois Sheriff's Association who were all part of those negotiations. Mm-hmm. So they were well aware of this law when it became, well, this bill and then the law when it, when it was signed. So to plead ignorance that they didn't know what their responsibilities are is just ridiculous. Yeah. So let's talk again, specifically in an instance like this with a sheriff's office, 
What are their specific requirements under the Trust Act that you're challenging as part of this lawsuit? So if someone has been arrested and is taken in by, in this case, Ogle or, or Sheriff, the Ogle Sheriff's Department or Stevenson, and then are in prison, they are then given, obviously, the opportunity to bond out. Once they bond out, they cannot continue to detain somebody on the on an immigration detainer. So if ICE reaches out and sends an immigration detainer, asks lo- local law enforcement, hey, hold on to these people, we're going to come pick them up. Local law enforcement under the Trust Act are not allowed to say, okay, yeah, we're going to hold them for you for up to 48 hours, which is what happened in all three cases with all three of our clients. All three of them bonded out after being arrested on simple traffic violations that they were arrested for. All three of them bonded out, but each time they were told, hold on, we're not going to let you go yet. Immigration is going to come pick you up. And in two of the instances, they were actually put on the phone with immigration officials and had an interview over the phone. And at that point, we're told, Immigration is coming to pick you up. And then this led to days, if not weeks, of immigration detention. And we should say these detainers or these immigration detainers, these have been a problem or an issue for a long time in terms of people being held at a state or local facility, sometimes misidentified, sometimes mm-hmm. for no reason, Is you know, which is really at the core of what the Trust Act was trying to address. Correct. These are administrative warrants. These are not judicially signed warrants. These are not—this is just office staff who are filling this out. And as you see, what's happened recently with with the Gonzalez case outside out of uh, California, they had at one point—well, they still—it's still there, but they have a facility there that was issuing these immigration containers across the country— if the local offices were closed, someone could contact this office and in the middle of the night, which is what happened in a lot of these cases, get an immigration detainer and then try to use that as a way to hold to ask local law enforcement to hold on to people. But that's why you get laws like the Trust Act put in place is so that local law enforcement are not allowed to do this under state law. So three clients in these two counties— I wonder if there's one story or one narrative of one of the clients that stands out to you that would really help in terms of mm-hmm. people understanding, like, what this looks like or what this feels like for people who are experiencing it. And, and obviously, uh, as Moni had, had mentioned, it, it's it's difficult. It's difficult to put ourselves in the place of someone at, who is just doing a simple act that all many of us do, unless we live downtown or somewhere we don't drive as much but it's driving to work. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened in all three instances is all three of these clients were driving to work. One of them, we, you know, we look at Mr. Uh, Pedro Trapa Castillo. He was on his way to work, driving from, from his house to work, and it had been raining and snowing throughout the morning. So obviously the roads were slick, and there was a stop sign at the bottom of a hill. He attempted to stop. Again, many of us have been in this situation. Put the brakes. You hope the car is going to stop, and it doesn't. And then you go through the stop sign. For many of us, we don't have to worry about then being arrested as a result of going through a stop sign. What happened was as he went through the stop sign because he could not stop due to the the icy conditions, he was immediately pulled over. Mm -hmm. And based off of going through the stop sign and a claim he did not have valid insurance, which later on was he did provide insurance information, he was arrested based off of that. Many of us have probably been in situations, I know I have myself, where I've been pulled over by police over something way worse, speeding, even reckless driving when I was 17. I was let off with a warning. 
Let's hope the statute of limitations is run on that <laughs> since you're been a few decades been passed, so it should be good. <laughs> but the, the situation here, and this is the thing as far as the fear that happens in, in, in many communities, is that just the simple act of driving to work is something that can be fearful for somebody. And that's what happened here with Mr. Castillo. So Mr. Castillo is pulled over. There's a claim that he doesn't have insurance. Mm-hmm. He's pulled over for running through the stop sign. They take him into custody? Yes, they did. And then what happens? He bonded out. After he bonded out, though, he was notified that he would not be released because there was an immigration detainer and that he would be held. And the next morning, ICE came and picked him up and took him to custody. I want to back up just a little bit. So he's taken into custody at the site of running the stop sign. Yes, was, was arrested. He's put in the back of a patrol car. And taken to the county jail or just yes, to an office? to the county jail. He's held there where he then is able to bond out? Correct. How long does all that take? That was within a few hours. Okay. But for a few hours on a routine traffic stop, he's being held in custody effectively. Yes, correct. And then after, at the at the end of that, and then he's bonded out. And then what happens after he finds out or... Uh, when they call and say they're going to detain him on the immigration charge? Well, he's, he's, they continued to detain him until the following morning. Then ICE officials came and picked him up, and then they took him into custody, and, and he was then put into, into detention uh, and has now been put into proceedings to effectively be removed from the country. Is that typical of what the uh, what's happened with the other clients in these lawsuits? That's all three of them were pulled over for simple traffic violations. This is not the first time we see this happening either. When when we look at the history of a lot of these anti-immigrant ordinances that have been, I mean, we go back to, to California almost like, God, I'm trying to remember how many years it's been, 20 years. Mm-hmm. And you look at SB 1070 in Arizona, which effectively said you could pull someone over if they looked or appeared to be undocumented. Right. This is not the first time this is happening. This is something that's always happened in many different communities where if you appear to be undocumented, and that's not saying that's exactly what happened here, but it's what we've seen has happened throughout the country that you've even had laws that have been in effect that have said you could pull someone over if they appeared to be undocumented. And it's many different communities throughout Illinois. This has been a fear for many people as a lot of these populations have grown across the state. It's happening in smaller communities when we go to northwest Illinois or you go to northern Illinois where you see a lot of these communities that are really growing in, in a lot of these collar counties, even further out. And as a result, you have a lot of changing of demographics in these areas. And the communities that are new are facing a lot of these fears of just, you know, any of us who come from areas outside of a metro area like Chicago, like I know both of us do, we know you have to drive yeah. anywhere you go, especially yeah. if you're going to work. To get anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what are you asking for? What's the request then? What's the demand in the lawsuits themselves? Well, in legalese, compensatory damages (laughs) and injunctive relief. We try not to do that on this show. (laughs) Exactly. So that's what we're saying is all three of these gentlemen lost their ability to work while they were detained. Some of them lost jobs as a result of being detained One of them lost his truck because he had to pay a well over $800 just to get his truck back. All of this has happened to them, and we can't find a certain sum and say, hey, this amount of money will make them whole again because nothing will, because they have been put into deportation proceedings as a result of these arrests. The main thing here is the injunctive relief. That is trying to say, 
throughout Illinois, local law enforcement, you have a state law that you need to follow. That is the Trust Act. Some of you are not following it. And this is to show this is what will happen if you don't follow it. There are many people who are ready to find out what's happening. And then if we have to file suits in other places, we will. Because the issue is that it's not being followed in certain areas. And these three gentlemen, when they signed on to be a part of this case, that's the thing to me that is showing the most bravery is the fact that they didn't sign up thinking, I'm going to have a cash cow and make money out of this. All three of them signed on because they said, we know this is happening to other people. We don't want this to happen to anybody else. We want to make sure local law enforcement are listening and that they are following state law. And that is the main thing here is that we're telling local law enforcement, this is state law. This is not optional. Right. And you, and I think Moni made reference to this. You talk about the clients thinking the same thing. You don't believe this is an isolated incident, do you? Absolutely not. Do you think this is widespread across the state? Absolutely. And that's one of the things, that, as Moni mentioned, is that when you have something like an enforcement mechanism that's negotiated out, which was these negotiations that happened with local law enforcement, it's done partly because you know you're making it harder to then enforce moving forward. And the enforcement now of the Trust Act now, it's, we're two years plus out, is one of the most difficult aspects. And of any time, you know, a, a law is signed, is the enforcement becomes much more difficult because we have an entire state to monitor. And if we have people that are outwardly violating it, that makes it much more difficult. Let me ask, are you hopeful that if someone else is listening to this and knows someone who's been a victim of something like this, that they'll reach out to you or uh, to Paso, to somebody to tell their story? Absolutely. And I know since we filed this and have done some of the media already around this, I've already heard from a few different people around the state who have contacted me and told me stories that are even, you know, just as heartbreaking as what we've already heard from these three clients. So people are hearing this and, and realizing, oh, something is being done, because I think people in a lot of these communities knew that something wasn't being done and, and were hoping something would be done as far as enforcement. So I would absolutely hope that people would hear it and then realize, okay, there's people we can reach out to who are already doing something and reach out to us or to Paso and let us know what's happening so that we can keep track of, of these violations. Great. Well, Aron, thank you so much for coming in and talking about these cases. And I think putting them in the context of you know, that it's not enough that we pass these laws, that, you know, part of it is being vigilant and figuring out enforcement mechanisms as we as we move forward. So um, I appreciate you coming in to talk about this, and uh, we'll have you back to talk about these cases as they move along. Right. Thanks, Ed. That's our episode for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Moni Ruiz Velasco Apaso, and our colleague, Aron Siebert Yera. You can read more about the cases we filed against Ogle and Stevenson counties on our website, aclu-il.org. If you want to find out more about the work of PASO, go to pasoaction.org. And if you want to report a violation of the Trust Act, you can call 1-855-435-7500. That is 855-435-7693. Thank you for listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Talking Liberties is produced by Max Bever. Executive producer, Chris Olson. This episode was mixed by Dave Leffel. Our content supervisor is Kimberly Kozeel. 
Our executive director is Colleen Connell. You can subscribe to this podcast and rate us. We love to hear your feedback. And again, you can visit our website at aclu-il.org. If you have a question, contact us directly at talkinglibertiesat at aclu-il.org. Until next time, this is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. See you soon.